This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and FPC Golfport on YouTube. All right. What does it mean to be born again? That's a simple question. What does it mean to be born again? You've been in church for some period of time, most of us. You've heard the words born again on many occasions. My question to you is, what does it mean? What does it mean to be born again? In today's text, there's going to be a guy named Nicodemus, and he doesn't know. He doesn't understand these words. And yet, these words are some of the most central and pivotal words that anyone could know or understand or apply to their faith. So how do you understand them? Well, I can tell you how most people do. If you were to ask most professing Christians to explain what it means to be born again, they'll usually answer with this response. They'll say, I was born again on the day that I walked the sawdust path, on the day I came forward at a revival, on the day I raised my hand, on the day I prayed the sinner's prayer, on the day I wrote my name on the back of the Bible, on the day I was baptized. Fill in the blanks. On these occasions, on this event, on this day in times past, that's when I was born again. What's the problem with that? That's wrong. What that does to answer in that kind of way is to yoke your regeneration, your being born again, you becoming a new creation in Christ to something that you do, as opposed to something that God does. Being born again is not primarily a function of your decision. Your decision comes after the fact. Being born again is an act of God by which the Holy Spirit descends into the heart of man, changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's at this point that the man is regenerated, and after that, he comes to faith. However, this action, being born again, being regenerated, becoming a new creation in Christ, it precedes our decision to believe, to accept, to profess, and the like. With that said, the wide majority of the modern world, including the evangelical world, puts the cart before the horse. It doesn't see this rightly. Well, today, in today's text, we're going to attempt to see it rightly. We're going to attempt to understand what it means to be born again. Nicodemus is going to ask Jesus, how is this done? How can this be? What's involved? And Jesus is going to answer. We're going to take Jesus' answer to Nicodemus and apply it to our own hearts, our lives, and questions as well. So if you would, please look at me at verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read these verses again, and then we'll just kind of work our way through the balance until we get to verse 16. Verse 1. There was a man, a man of the Pharisees, interesting, named Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. Now this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, verse 1. We're introduced to this man, this man named Nicodemus. Now, who was Nicodemus? He's one of those names we've heard of. We know he's somewhere in the Bible. We think he might be in the New Testament half, but we don't necessarily remember who he was, what he did, what he's famous for, and the like. Well, this is it. This interaction is the primary text. There's one more we'll look at later this morning, but this is the primary text where we read about Nicodemus. Now, what we learn about Nicodemus is this. In verse 1, we learn that he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler among the Jews. Now, to be a Pharisee, that was the religious elite. To be a Pharisee was to be among the religious elite. When the people of Israel 
were asked who the real religious people were, who were the leaders in their communities and the like, they would point to the Pharisees. They were the guys wearing the hats and the wardrobe, and they stood on the corners, and they prayed real loudly and the like. This was the religious elite of their day. With that said, the religious elite of Christ's day didn't like Christ very much. It's one of the cruelest ironies is that the people who were the religious elite in Jesus' own day didn't like Jesus. And so when you read the Gospel accounts, what you read is the Pharisees time and time again coming at Jesus. They would challenge him. They'd argue with him. They'd debate with him. They would say mean, nasty things to Jesus. This, this was the Pharisees. So when we come to verse 1, we see that this man, Nicodemus, he's identified as a Pharisee. He's out of this same school of thought. Now what's he doing in seeking out Jesus in verses 1 through 3. Why would a Pharisee seek him out? Well, first off, let's notice the circumstances by which Nicodemus approached Jesus. Verse 2 says that he visited Jesus at nighttime. He came to Jesus, not in the public square, not in the marketplace, not in the usual places that the Pharisees usually came to argue and debate with Jesus. But interesting, he came alone, apparently, and he came at night. What this suggests is that Nicodemus, for his part, he didn't want this to be a big public thing. I don't think his desire was to embarrass Jesus the way sometimes the Pharisees desire to do. He apparently wanted this to be more of a, I guess, a private interaction. Maybe he had thoughts or questions or what have you. With that said, in verse 2, Nicodemus starts off this interaction by paying Jesus a compliment. He goes to Jesus and he says, oh, oh, Mr. Jesus, I, I have some, some nice, nice thoughts for you. Specifically, he says, you know, Jesus, you are doing such amazing things. There's so many things. I mean, everyone's seeing him and no one has done this sort of stuff. Jesus, I got to tell you, God must really be on your side. God must really have your back because if he wasn't, you couldn't do this. Specifically, verse 2 said that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, he's paying a compliment to Jesus. And maybe he expects Jesus to go, oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much, Nicodemus. That's kind of you. Well, Jesus hears the words, and then he responds to Nicodemus. But his response to what Nicodemus said, it changes the tenor and content of their conversation entirely. Jesus knew that when he looked at Nicodemus' eyes, and Nicodemus didn't get it. He was complimenting Jesus on being godly, doing God-ish stuff. But he didn't recognize that he was standing in the presence of God himself. He didn't recognize that this was the king. And if he didn't recognize that Jesus was the king, then there's no way in the world that he could perceive his kingdom. And that's what Jesus tells him. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that's an interesting insinuation here. It's a fascinating insinuation. And the reason that Jesus suggests Nicodemus is blind is more fascinating still. Jesus tells Nicodemus that the reason you can't see, the reason you don't understand, the reason your brain is fogged, the reason you don't understand who I am, what I'm doing, in spite of all the miracles, you can't trace them back to the appropriate source, the reason you don't get it, Nicodemus, is that you have not been born again. That must happen first if you were to understand this other stuff aright. If you understand anything about your king, if you understand anything about his kingdom, you must be born again. So he says, unless you're born again, unless this happens to you, Nicodemus, which suggests that it hadn't happened yet, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you're Nicodemus there, this conversation has all of a sudden gone way off track. You know, you came in with the thoughts, you know, things you were going to talk about and the like. You came in and you flattered Jesus. Oh, you're doing some really cool stuff. Jesus, God must really be on your side. Then Jesus absolutely changes the course of the conversation, implies that this religious leader doesn't get it, doesn't understand, that he's blind. 
And this would have confused Nicodemus for two reasons. First of all, Jesus was diagnosing a spiritual condition, a spiritual blindness, that Nicodemus didn't even realize he had. This great religious leader is saying, you got a problem, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, you know, where? What? Born again? What? What? So on the one hand, Jesus diagnosed a problem Nicodemus had, and that would have thrown him for a loop. Secondly, this phrase, born again, Nicodemus didn't get it. And if he needed to be born again, if that was something that he honestly needed to do, he had no idea how. How do, how do you go about this? And so with a look of you know, consternation and confusion probably on his face, Nicodemus asked Jesus, what are you talking about? And verse 4, let's read verse 4. So Nicodemus said to him, how? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You know, the uh, first few times I ever encountered Nicodemus' response here, I understood he was a Pharisee, so I figured, I figured this, Nicodemus, he's just being argumentative. He's talking about mother's womb second time. He's just being kind of deliberately obtuse here. He's really just being argumentative and obtuse and the like, and that's, in fairness, that's something the Pharisees regularly were. They were regularly argumentative and obtuse. That was good descriptions of them. But upon further review, I don't think that Nicodemus was being argumentative and obtuse here. I think he was legitimately confused. I think he respected Jesus and his teachings, and he knew that even if he didn't accept that this was the Messiah, he knew that God was doing something with Jesus. And so Jesus said something about being born again. I don't think he got it. He says, stop the presses, Jesus. Is a man supposed to, even as he's old and wrinkly and the like, is he supposed to go in his mother's womb and be born again? Is that what you're talking about? That can't be it. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. That's not it. Let's look at Jesus' response in verses 5 through 8. So Jesus answered, and said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. At the outset this morning, we asked the question, a thinking question, a question I hope you've given some thought in the past 10 minutes. The question is, what does it mean to be born again? Jesus is certainly talking about it. It was important to him. It's a phrase that's commonplace in evangelical circles. But how do you define it? When does it happen? What is the cause? This is the sort of stuff that Nicodemus was wondering as well. Well, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus is giving the answer. He says, Nicodemus... That there are two births that every Christian will undergo. The first one is this. The first birth is the physical birth. It's here referred to as the birth of the flesh, birth of water, what have you. It's a physical, physical birth. Now, simply by virtue of being alive, everyone in this room has undergone that. Simply by virtue of being here this morning, you can check mark the first one. You've got that done. Nicodemus had that done. Born of the flesh. Absolutely. That's the physical birth. That's the easy one for us to wrap our minds around. And that's why Nicodemus thought that's what Jesus was talking about. Because that's the most obvious form of birth. When you talk, if someone was to ask you when you were born, tell me about your birth. You and I, we can usually immediately tell the details. We go, well, I don't remember it, but I was born in such and such a date, such and such a hospital, to such and such a parents. In fact, I've got this certificate that has all that information recorded. So we understand something about our physical birth. There's details and the like. We understand something about it. With that said, with that said, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us, 
that that birth, that birth does not grant us everlasting life merely by having undergone it. There is no such thing as universal salvation to everyone just on the basis that they were born once. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, and he's saying to us, that in order to be saved, in order to perceive the kingdom of God, let alone to go there, you have to be born again. And at this time, he's talking about something spiritual. He's not talking about a second physical birth. He's saying there's something that has to happen to the inner man. There's something that has to happen by which our spirit comes alive in ways, substantive ways, that it wasn't before. Now, what What is he talking about? Well, let's linger on this doctrine for a few moments. As we said, when we came into this world, you and I were alive physically. However, the part we sometimes don't understand or agree with is the biblical assertion that although we came into this world physically alive, we also came into this world spiritually dead. You understand that when we came into this world, kicking and screaming, we came in physically alive. There was an EKG hooked up to us, you know, and go, bidoop, bidoop. that was us. But at the same time, if there was an EKG hooked up to our spiritual condition at this point, flatlining, that's how things were when we were born. And to prove that, Ephesians 2.1 suggests here that we were born dead in our sins and trespasses. Regularly, God calls about the believer. The child of God is one who is alive and the reference is to the unbeliever as he who is dead. So Ephesians 2.1, we're born dead in our sins and transgressions. Psalm 58.3 says in even stronger terms in the Old Testament, which Nicodemus should have been aware of. It said this, it says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. The wicked are estranged from the womb even before they were born. The wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth. A number of weeks ago, we talked about original sin. talked about this idea that Adam's sin imputed his guilt to us. When we are conceived, that guilt is present. You might not like it, you might not want it, but it is the biblical narrative. It is the truth of Scripture. Scripture tells us that that was our state. Physically alive when we were born, spiritually dead. This was our condition. Again, you don't have to like it to see it that it is in Scripture. Now, let me ask you a question then. Let's presume that you have an individual who is spiritually dead. Let's say they live uh, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, what have you. Let's say they live some length of time. If that person remains spiritually dead, can that person understand spiritual truths? Can that person perceive and see and comprehend things of the kingdom of God? If spiritually speaking, they're flatlining. Short answer is no. 1 Corinthians 2, the Bible describes the limitation of fallen man. Apart from something happening in his heart, it says this, the natural person, the unsaved, unregenerate, unborn again person, the natural person does not accept the things of God. They are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The unbeliever could quote scripture, look at scripture, have a dialogue about scripture, and never have it penetrate the heart. The person whose heart has not been changed by the spirit first can debate these things, can even convince themselves or others that that they are saved simply by habit or going to church or doing religious things like Nicodemus was doing, and yet never have it actually penetrate their heart. Spiritually dead means dead. If you and I, if we go out 
to the graveyard and we set up our lawn chair there and we just look out at the graveyard and just look for activity, what are we going to see? Well, not much. The inhabitants of the graveyard aren't, aren't going to be doing much. They're not going to be doing anything. And the reason is this, because they can't. Physically dead bodies cannot so much as move an inch of their own accord or own volition. The same is true, spiritually speaking, of those who are spiritually dead. They cannot of their own volition so much as move an inch towards Jesus. Again, you don't have to like it, you don't even have to understand it, but you cannot deny this is what Scripture says. The natural person does not accept the things of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them. Able, his ability... Not his choice, his ability. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned and he needs to be spiritually born again. Once he is, he is finally then enabled and persuaded to believe that which he previously rejected. Being born again precedes our faith. Being regenerated precedes our faith. And this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. But Nicodemus, shocker, won't get it. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus' response. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? How can this be? What are you talking about, O oh Jesus? How can this be? What is this born again, born again stuff? That's not the way that worked. You see, those, even in religious communities, can convince themselves that they've got a monopoly on truth, that they all got it all figured out, and then... They open the book, they open the Bible, or Jesus speaks to them, and they reject or don't even comprehend the words that they find. How can this be? You know, if you were to tell an atheist or an agnostic that the reason why they can't understand godly things is because the Holy Spirit hasn't enabled their heart to do so, they will become angry and offended with you. Now, why? Well, here's the reason. Because in doing that, and teaching that, and telling them what the Bible says, and telling them that their nature is constrained, that until their hearts are changed, they can't come to faith, in telling them that, you have shackled their autonomy in their mind's eye. You have limited their free agency. You see, to the atheist, to the humanist, to the modernist, to most people in the world around us, here's the way that they treat faith. They say, okay, we come into this world as free agents, we got a blank slate and as we live out our days and as we hear different influences and the like you know then we use our discernment and our wisdom and we pick we pick experiences and truths that we then believe and we reject other things and and some people might choose jesus choose christianity they might decide for christ and others, using their weaker discernment, might say, no, that's not the way it works. I'm going to reject Jesus based on my view of the Bible and the like. The problem, no matter whether you choose him or don't choose him, the problem, if you think that your salvation rests upon your choice, is that robs God of his glory. And it undermines all the teachings we see about regeneration. If you could be born again of yourself simply by selecting Jesus from the buffet of options that are out there, if you could be born again by your volition and by your choice, what do you need the Holy Spirit for? Being born again is a function by which God sends his spirit into the dead heart of a man and changes that man's heart. After the heart is changed, he can then believe and accept and choose and the like. He can phrase it however he wants, but the truth is this, that God acted first. 
God acted first. And to say to believe anything contrary is to steal from the glory of God and to make yourself feel better. I decided for Christ. The guy down the street, he had the same information that I did. He didn't decide for Christ. I am a little shrewder. I thought this through. doesn't work that way. God chooses. God selects. God ordains. God calls. If you want to get really reformed this morning, say God elects. God predestines and the like. These things are the teaching of the Scripture. And again, we see it here in the text. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, you've got the tall pointy hat, you've got the nice robe, you stand on the corners. I know you got all this, but there's one thing you're lacking. You're not born again. And unless you are, unless you're born of the Spirit and of water, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I assume that Nicodemus was surprised and shocked to hear these words. But these are not the only time that Christ speaks them. They're not the only time they appear in Scripture. Let's look at verses 9 through 16. We'll read Nicodemus' response once again, and then we'll see how Jesus builds, builds on this. Verse 9. So Nicodemus answers and says to him, how can this be? How does it work this way? How is this possible? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? I see your tall pointy hat. I see your robes. I see that you've been studying the Bible and the Old Testament, just studying Hebrew Scripture. How did you miss this? Are you a teacher of Israel? Did you never read Psalm 58.3? Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know how this works? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify to what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Let me stop there for a second. If you have the New King James, you'll notice that the word we and our, it's all capitalized. And the reason why is because this is a Trinitarian reference. It is not Jesus saying, hey, me and the disciples got together and we talked about this, and you're just not believing what we think. That's not it. This is a Trinitarian statement. Jesus says, We speak what we know and testify to what we've seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Nicodemus, if you don't get this, how are you going to believe in anything else I might tell you? You know, Nicodemus may have come in to talk to Jesus about some of the mysteries of the cosmos or some of the hidden things about the Jewish faith or what have you. Whatever he was thinking, however smart Nicodemus thought he was, Jesus cuts him down to size in here and says, Look, if you don't get this, what else are you going to get? This is essential. This is principle. Then he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You have heard those words before, but you might not have remembered the context in which they were said. This phrase was not said in the Beatitudes, it was not in the Sermon on the Mount, This was given in this interaction at nighttime. This man named Nicodemus. Whoever believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is a function of belief. Not of works. You can't work your way up. You can't do enough good deeds to offset the bad deeds. No. Salvation is a function of belief. And belief is a function of a heart that's been changed so that it can believe. You get this? Salvation is a function, not working of belief, not of works. Your faith is a function of having been born again. Being born again precedes your faith. Grace precedes faith is a reformed way to put this. 
So this is what Jesus is imparting to Nicodemus, although Nicodemus at this point, he's not prepared to receive it. And the reason why is because his heart is dead. He has the trappings of religion. There are many in our day, even in church settings, in brick buildings with crosses out front, that have the trappings, have the appearance, the facade of religion, like Nicodemus. Maybe even among the religious elite, the leaders in the church in our day. And yet, if you don't have a reckoning with this, with how we're saved, who we're saved by, and what the fruit of that salvation looks like, then you have reason to be concerned. Nicodemus had reason to be concerned, even if he didn't understand that or not. Now, this morning, as we look to wind up, let me mention a, a couple things about Nicodemus. I want to bring his story to a close this morning. You know, Nicodemus was where maybe some of us, maybe some of our loved ones are. Nicodemus was on the outside looking into the kingdom. He didn't know it. There's some in our lives who think they're saved. They're not. They don't know it. Nicodemus didn't understand his predicament. He didn't understand that he was hanging by the thinnest of threads over the deepest of pits. He didn't understand that. Well, Jesus, because he cared for Nicodemus, he shared his views. He shared the truth with Nicodemus, truth that Nicodemus needed to hear and maybe we need to hear, or loved ones that we have need to hear. Now, the good news for Nicodemus, and for some of us as well, and for our loved ones, hopefully, is that in Nicodemus's case, from what we can see in Scripture, it would appear that even though Nicodemus's heart seems hardened here in John 3, that that was not the end of the story of Nicodemus. This wasn't the concluding text that we see about Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus makes another appearance, another appearance in the Bible, but it's much later. Here we're in John 3. Well, if you were to fast forward and you were to go all the way to John 19, you'd see that Nicodemus, he shows up again. But the circumstances are fascinating, and the circumstances suggest that something had happened to his heart. Nicodemus shows up right after Jesus' crucifixion. It's possible he observed it. It's possible he watched it. It shows up right after Jesus has died. John 19, listen to what we read there. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, John's reminding his reader, hey, remember this guy? Remember him? Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, he also came. And he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about a hundred pounds. Then they, meaning Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, then they, they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a tomb which no one had been laid. And so they, meaning Joseph and Nicodemus, laid Jesus down because this was preparation day and the tomb was nearby. Now, as we said before, when Jesus first met Nicodemus, by all appearances, Nicodemus was not saved, born again, regenerate, whatever phrase you want to choose. Now, he looked religious. As we said before, he looked religious, but his religion was apparently only skin deep. And because of that, even in talking with Jesus, even looking God in the eye, at that moment, he was still outside looking in at the kingdom, and his soul was in danger. And so Jesus warned him of this in John 3. But by the time you get to John 19... It looks like something's happened. It looks like something exciting has occurred. See, in John 19, Nicodemus is one of only two men in all of Jerusalem. There were a lot of people. 
He's one of only two that laid Jesus in the tomb, that wrapped the body of Jesus with care and affection because he was doing this at great risk. And honestly, it was costly, as we see. It was about 100 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes and the like. This was costly to him. It was risky to him. But it appeared that he had a love and affection for this Jesus that way transcended just the simple flattery he gave him in John 3. Something looks like it happened. Scripture doesn't expressly describe his conversion, but it seems to be implied by, by what he did. It would seem that his heart may have been changed. And, and I don't know about you, but I think it's reasonably likely that the man who was on the receiving end of the most famous verse in all of Scripture, from Jesus' mouth to his ears, I think it's reasonably likely that such a man was converted and convicted by what Jesus said. Nicodemus was the one who heard John 3.16. You and I have heard it a thousand times. He heard it the first time. He heard it from Jesus himself. I believe, based on the trajectory and on the, the nature of how Nicodemus is described here, I believe that he may well have come to faith. And that's exciting to know because he didn't have that in John 3. You see, at some point, at some point if you're a Christian, if your heart has changed, at some point God did something. You don't know exactly when that was, I don't know. By and large, he did something, and he took the heart of stone, and he made it a heart of flesh. There are other pictures in Scripture of when and where this happened. I'll pick just one of the most famous occurrences. If you think on Calvary, on Calvary, how many crosses were there? Three, right. You see Jesus in the middle, you see a thief is crucified to each side of him. So you've got Jesus in the middle, there's a thief on each side. Now Scripture tells us that the thieves, the thieves that were crucified with Jesus, these were, these were bad guys. This was a rogues gallery. These are people that the people of Jerusalem couldn't wait to be rid of, these two thieves. Now initially, both of the thieves were mocking Jesus. He was in the middle, and they're both kind of rebuking him. They're laughing at him, they're mocking him, and they're telling him, look, if you are the king of the Jews, if you are who you say you are, if you are this great guy, then get down off this cross. And while you're at it, Help us down too. So they're mocking him. But then, as they mock him, something happened while they're all just up there on the cross. Something happened in the heart of one of the men, one of the thieves. There's reason to believe it was the, the thief on Christ's right. This thief, this thief who had once been rebuking Jesus only moments before, something has happened. And then when he hears the thief on the other side of Jesus continue to mock Jesus, this one he shuts down the other thief. He says, no. He says, you and I, we deserve what we're getting. But this one, this one, this Jesus of Nazareth, he is innocent. You and I, we deserve what we're getting, but this one next to me, he is innocent. And then this thief, he says something that he wouldn't have even said 10 minutes ago, let alone a year, five or 10 years in the past. He looks at Jesus, this one who's dying on a cross, and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized the king. Somehow he was enabled and persuaded in his heart to see Jesus in a way that he didn't even see him ten minutes earlier. Now, is it possible he reasoned his way to faith? He just decided for Christ at that point? That's not the trajectory he was on. What's more likely is what we see in Scripture. That the Holy Spirit, which blows as a wind that you would never guess. And the, to this thief, this guilty man, you would never have guessed. The Holy Spirit would have landed, alighted upon his heart. But Scripture suggests that's exactly what happened. This thief's heart was changed. And he suddenly professes faith. He sees Jesus with eyes that he didn't before see. He sees him as the king. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And the coolest response you'll ever see in the whole Bible is what Jesus said to the man. Jesus says, truly, truly, this day you will be with me in paradise. Not after ten years in purgatory. This day, you, you, the thief on the cross next to me, this day you will be with me in paradise. This man didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't merit it. We don't even know why it happened. Why did the Spirit do this? We don't know. That's of God's own choice, God's own volition. But we know what happened. This is regeneration. This man's heart was changed. And immediately he bore witness to that change with what came out of his mouth. question for you and I is have we undergone that change? Many of us go to church out of habit. question is do we go to church out of faith? Has this happened to us? Have we been born again, or are we deluding ourselves like Nicodemus did for all those years, thinking that he was just fine with God when he wasn't? Have you and I been born again? You know the fruit, the evidence you've been born again? The proof that you ever once repented unto faith is that you continue to repent unto faith, and even more so. It's not that one time in the distant past you wrote your name in the back of the Bible. It's certainly not that you were christened or baptized at some point in the distant past, and because of that you should have assurance. No. The proof that you've been born again is that your nature is different than it once was. You're a new creation in Christ. Behold the new. The old is gone. Can you see that about yourselves? Do others see that about you? Do those who knew you in times past recognize that there's a change? Now you and I might continue to sin. We will continue to sin as long as we live on this mortal coil. And yet at the same time we should be different. There should be something substantive and increasingly different about us as Christians than who we once were. There should be fruit. We talked about this in our study of Galatians. Fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit's here, it will bear fruit. It will bear fruit that will prove you have a union with the tree of Christ. It will prove that you have fruit with the vine. It will prove that he who started a good work in you is committed to finishing it. Is that true of you? Be introspective. Be honest with yourself. There are some who tip their hat, even accept the theology, and yet it hasn't affected, affected their heart. Is it true of you? Conversely, as opposed to those who are increasingly acting more righteous, who are increasingly becoming more Christ-like as they grow in Christ, conversely, if you say that you believe in Jesus, but you're keeping him at arm's length, that that's your habit of life, and you really don't have any real place for his word or his church, his sacraments, the things he's given you, let me suggest that you get real with yourself and understand, like Nicodemus, you may be in danger. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be introspective. You know, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, didn't I do this and this and this? Didn't I do all manner of things for you? And he'll say to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. These were ones, like Nicodemus in chapter 3, that didn't know Jesus and that thought that they were fine with God. They weren't. With that said, such as these, as long as you have breath in your lungs, are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Whether it's you or a loved one this morning, whether it's you or a loved one, remember this, as long as you draw breath in your lungs, that you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. The Spirit can move and can save and regenerate those that you're caring so much about. What should you do between now and then? Pray. Pray that God would act. Monica, the mother of Augustine, when she was worried her son was as lost as lost could be. She prayed and she prayed and she prayed. And in time, he not only came to faith, he became one of the greatest leaders in the early church. 
And a quote that's often ascribed to Monica is this. When people ask, what did you do? What did you say? Was there some silver bullet speech you gave Augustine? And she says, no. She said this. A child of many prayers is seldom lost. This morning, if there are those you are concerned about, those who do not appear to be born again, pray for them that, that they would be. Pray that the Spirit would move, and that he would change a heart, draw our loved ones to himself. God is good. God is gracious. God is patient. God is loving, kind, and merciful. Pray to him that he would show that mercy on those that you care about. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.